Hello and welcome to The Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings and every episode I have the privilege of having a discussion with E.C. on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, it's our goal to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. As always, thank you so much for tuning into the show. How are you, EC? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. We are going to talk about something today, uh, <laughs> semaglutide. I hope I'm pronouncing yeah. that correctly. But don't worry. This is this this is going to be a very interesting conversation, regardless of the fact that we just named a, a <laughs> molecule. Or at chemical least that's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah chemical compound. Um, what is semaglutide? What do we need to know to get into this conversation about um, what it does and why maybe it's a bit surprising that we are going to talk about it in the way we are. Oh, weight loss drug. Yeah. 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 So I've gotten a few questions about it. It's this new weight loss drug on the market. Um, I think there's been definitely some reports, especially that it's like Hollywood's new weight loss mm. drug, which probably is a red flag for a lot of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess even Elon Musk tweeted, and I think it was late oh. October that he was using it recently. So I you know, wanted to address it. It's effectiveness, pros and cons. And why it could actually be a really good breakthrough, which I think is surprisingly uh, surprising probably to hear, yeah. but especially when we sort of look at the realities of weight loss maintenance and why it could be a, a really good thing. So the drug, as you said, is semaglutide, but the brand names are either Wegovi or Ozempic. And so when it's used to treat diabetes, it's called Ozempic, and it's been approved for that use since 2017. And when it's used to treat obesity, it's called Wegovi, and it was approved for that use as of um, June 2021. And so, yeah, it's still semaglutide for both of them. The doses generally differ depending on if we're looking at it from a diabetes angle or a obesity angle. Both are used as injectables once a week. And the FDA website says that Wegovi is the first drug approved for general weight loss since 2014. So there certainly have been drugs on the market, but this is obviously a new one. And it's approved for use if the person is either overweight, so defined as BMI greater than 27, and also has a weight-related complication like high blood pressure. So they kind of have to meet both of those checkpoints. Or if the person is obese with BMI over 30 and therefore, and no other complication is needed for that kind of qualification. Um Again, there have been other weight loss drugs on the market, so I definitely don't want people to think like, oh, this is the first time there's been a weight loss drug. But I think given the lack of success that we see with weight on kind of a large scale, it probably also explains that none of them have been sort of a magic pill, so to speak. And yeah. so semaglutide has really shown some improved results compared to these existing drugs for sure. Okay, I'm going to ask a, a serious question in a second, but, but a slightly less serious question. Elon Musk and everybody in Hollywood, I don't think <laughs> have BMIs greater than 27 in weight complications right. like health. Yes. Uh, the obvious is like, okay, clearly some people don't care about those things, including yeah. people who prescribe these, but anything worth mentioning there in terms of that obvious... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it for people that are not meeting the standards that they just listed. Yeah. It's sort of again like is this really what you guys need to be doing? Um I think there's a lot of people in a lot of weight ranges where diet and exercise is the appropriate strategy and that this really should be used for those approaches. But you know what? If it if it doesn't have uh any kind of long-term effects as we'll get into, I mean, and and they're the ones paying for it, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So real question, since, yeah. uh, almost everything we talk about here is diet and exercise yeah. that ends up being the prescription almost at the end of every one of our conversations. Yeah. 
talk to me about should should we be this surprised that we're talking about this particular thing in a not overly negative kind of way. Right. And I assume there's going to be lots of nuance and, and yeah. as we've already kind of alluded to a little bit, but like this is a drug. So yeah. it's surprising to me that we're already just talking about it in general. Totally. Yeah. I mean, diet, ex- diet and exercise um, can work. It's remarkably effective. So that hasn't changed. Fear not. Uh, the sticking point is there. If it works, if we can do it. Mm. So we have to be really realistic that when we look on a large scale across we could do the US, but we could do the world. Diet and exercise as a strategy is failing. You know, it's something like over $60 billion is spent each year in the diet industry in the US alone. And as a society, our obesity epidemic just keeps getting worse. Right. So as much as it would be nice to think this, it's not going to be true. Like I can't fix everything with fruits and vegetables. <laughs> You're trying. I'm, I'm trying, trying. You know, and lots of people are putting out lots of great nutrition and ed- exercise content, but when we look at how effective it's going overall, it's not going very well, right? And some of this is because the body is wired to defend against fat loss as well as enjoy these highly processed foods. And we've talked about this plenty in different episodes. I think most recently reviewing the book Burn, but one of the quotes I just loved by the author Herman Ponzer was that quote, our metabolism doesn't dictate energy balance, it responds to energy balance. And so, end quote. So I think people, when they think about their metabolism, they think about it's like this preset single number. And certainly our genes influence that number. And that means it's going to be around a certain number. But our metabolism also changes based on a number of factors, including our diet. So when he says our metabolism responds to energy balance, first, energy balance, he's talking about that relationship between calories in and calories out. But then responds, meaning calories in and calories out, compensate such that they aren't static day to day. And they also affect each other because the body is trying to not have a big disparity between the two. So when calories in drops, like when you go on a diet, calories out will drop as well as a response Mm -hmm. to that. Metabolism Mm -hmm. becomes more efficient, which we've talked about. And more so what we see is this decrease in often subconscious movement, like the amount of fidgeting or standing or house chores we do. People will know this as the neat component of the calories out equation. And so what that, what that ultimately does is lowers the total amount of calories that we burn on any given day. And it's not intentional by the individual. It's kind of a lot of subconscious regulation to change the disparity or almost equalize the disparity between calories in and calories out. And the other thing when calories in drops is that we're hungry. And so the yeah. hormone leptin is involved in this energy balance equation. Leptin is a hormone that is released proportional to the amount of fat that you have, meaning the more fat you have, the more leptin is released, telling your brain that, hey, you have enough energy around. And then as you lose fat, leptin decreases. And so your brain is aware of this decrease in kind of energy reserves. And generally from an evolutionary perspective, decreasing our energy reserves is not a good thing, right? And so that's the trigger of, okay, my energy reserves are coming down. I am hungry. I want to make sure that my energy reserves stay where they are. Now, it appears though that leptin also works in the short term. So it will sense that you've cut calories, even if you haven't lost fat mass off your body. And so I'm sure anybody who's done kind of a drastic weight loss approach is all too familiar with this, right? They cut calories and they're hungry on day one, even though they have that energy still there around. And so this is one of the reasons why I recommend such conservative caloric deficits. We have to navigate hunger. And this is a big, Mm -hmm. big issue. Mm -hmm. Now on the flip side of this, like, idea that our metabolism is responding. What happens when we eat more? Well, when calories in goes up above our needs, the body also becomes more inefficient 
and we tend to start moving more often subconsciously. And so we see this in overfeeding studies that when we might overfeed someone by 3,500 calories and they don't gain a pound, some people might only gain a quarter of a pound, some maybe even not even that. The metabolism is responding, metabolism is increasing to try to do something with all of this excess energy coming in. And so I think we talked about this in a bonus episode, which isn't available anymore, but it's around this point when people are thinking, okay, well, dieting is a point pointless because the body just adjusts, (laughs) the body just self-regulates here and makes sure that calories in and calories in is equal. And it's like, not exactly. If it perfectly adjusts, we would never have weight gain or weight loss. (laughs) And so calorie caloric deficits work for weight loss and caloric surpluses work for weight gain. It's just that it doesn't really happen at this precise, like 3,500 calories per pound that we hear about all the time. And I think one of the really interesting things to, to point out about this whole phenomenon that we see with weight gain is that average weight gain in adulthood is about one to two pounds a year. Okay. And if you were to take that as like the theoretical, this person's put on, let's say 7,000 calories in the year because they gain two pounds like that. And you divide that by 365 days. You really see that that person's only eating an extra 20 calories a day, which is a really, really small difference. Like super, super small. Like you'll have more errors on nutrition labels than 20 calories a day. And we have these wild swings in intake of like what happened over Thanksgiving versus whatever. So this idea that like, you know, um, 20 calories a day is potentially adding up to this two pounds really points to that the body is pretty good at trying to adjust and compensate so that we don't have these wild swings in weight. And instead it's kind of this gradual climb up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I went through all of that to finally get to your question, which I know was a big prelude, but (laughs) what does that have to do with kind of needing a drug? So I think it's best to think about being overweight and obesity as matters of degree, where the further you get from a healthy weight, the harder it's going to be. And I don't just mean to lose the weight. The real problem is weight loss is very temporary. It's it's pra- probably we could say that weight loss almost is successful. What, what the failure is, is whether or not the people can maintain that weight loss. And so from the hall paper in the show notes, more than half of the lost weight for people on diets was regained within two years. And by five years, more than 80% of the lost weight is regained. We Mm -hmm. see weight regain constantly. So I would argue that almost weight loss isn't really the problem. It's the weight loss maintenance, right? That is. Now, is some of the problem of this weight regain because of these really wacky, overly restrictive and odd diets? A hundred percent. (laughs) Yes. Like Mm -hmm. if we could just stop, you know, people trying these diets where they only drink three shakes a day, that's a huge part of it. Is some of it that people just stop doing the diet? 100% yes, right? So there's going to be other reasons why that this is occurring. But some of the reasons why they stop doing the diet is because the appetite and the cravings dramatically increase beyond what would be needed to replace the lost weight. And that's, again, mm-hmm. from the Hall paper. So maybe they've lost 10 pounds, but they're more hungry and have more cravings than they would just to eat back what would get them those 10 pounds back. And the more that somebody has weight to lose, the more likely that this will be an issue. And so this is why, especially as somebody kind of climbs up in weight, willpower, especially in our modern food environment, just doesn't work. That's what we see again on a large scale. I mean, maybe if our only options were like turkey breasts and strawberries, okay, it it would be fine, but that's not the reality. This stuff is around everywhere. It's too easy to buy. We're all busy. And that's just really a problem. Um, especially when you're hungry, stressed and fatigued. And so this is a big part of why we don't really have success with diet and exercise. Mm, Okay. So 
how is this particular like what what is the what is the magic in this magic pill is it like is it uh is it reducing hunger is it like you know is it redu- it just i'm just not as hungry as, as i was before and that's the magic mm-hmm. or what's going on here that at least is seems to be having uh the positive effect that it does yeah yeah, that is how it's working. And I, one of our really, really old episodes when I was talking about like pharmaceuticals, I was like, maybe we could find something that works with hunger signaling. This yeah. is it. This is it. In yeah. terms of the mechanisms for weight loss, semaglutide is affecting our hunger. It's also affecting our cravings. So semaglutide, it's a synthetic version of a naturally occurring hormone called glucagon-like peptide 1 or GLP-1. It's released from the gut after eating. And both GLP-1 and semaglutide, they app act on appetite centers in the brain and the gut. And so they produce feelings of satiety. And so people basically aren't as hungry. And it also, and this is what appears to make it more effective than some of the existing drugs on the market. It also appears to reduce cravings. So, you know, craving is this idea that you're wanting food, even though you aren't hungry. Right. And it's, so it seems to be that it has the ability to dampen potentially the dopamine response that we would get from that food. And therefore it reduces the cravings. Now, the important point to point out about semaglutide's effectiveness is that it's considered an adjunct to diet and exercise. Like Mm. you still need diet and exercise to lose the weight that is on you. Right. And the drug helps get the diet in check so that you're in a caloric deficit. It it won't remove though your taste or preference for foods. Like you're still going to like pizza. You're still going to like the taste of ice cream. It's just that it will very much likely help you cut down how much you'll eat at any one time or whether or not you might reach for it when you're not hungry. Now, in terms of effectiveness, it, it is really effective. You know, I've said before, and you'll hear people say uh, before that 5% of weight lost is considered to be clinically significant. And that's true. Meaning if you're 200 pounds and you lose 10 pounds, your risk, for example, of diabetes can drop significantly. Now, in the case of weight loss, more is usually better health-wise. So getting to pass that 5%, like we shouldn't think about 5% is where we want to stop. Like losing more weight than 5%, 10%, 20% is not just risk lowering, but once we get to that 10, 20% range, sometimes it can even be kind of therapeutic or risk reversal, right? Mm -hmm. When we look at some of the other strategies out there, something like bariatric surgery, gastric bypass, um, this solution can help people lose 25 to 30% of weight loss, which is one of the reasons why it remains so popular because it has the most effective, um, reduction in weight loss. It also happens to reduce one's hunger, which is one of the reasons why it's effective. So keeping those percentages in mind that 5% loss can be meaningful. And the gold standard of, uh, gastric bypass is somewhere near 25% or higher as part of the study for the phase three clinical trials for semaglutide. This is the wilding paper in the show notes. They found that 70% of participants achieved 10% weight loss or more. And one third lost at least 20% of baseline weight. So you're starting to get near what a gastric bypass can do with now a drug instead of a surgery, right? So that's, that's relatively unheard of with the weight loss drugs to date. And then the average weight loss was above, was about 15% from baseline. And it was a 68 week long study. So the percentages are impressive, especially relative to existing drugs, as I said. Now, I do want to go back or point out, I guess, that whenever we give these percentages, it's really important to look at absolute numbers. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we can get a little bit lost in percentages. You only want to think of of what kind of what was the absolute number. So in this case, in that study that I just mentioned, the semaglutide group lost about 28 pounds more than the placebo group. So the average weight coming in was about 232, I believe, and they got down to about 200. That will be huge in terms of reducing health risk and even improving their quality of life. 
I do want to point out in in many cases, they will still be overweight. And that's not trying to suggest that we need to be a certain physique. Rather, I just want to make it clear when I say that this is a weight loss drug that's effective, I don't want people to think like, poof, it's magic. And all of a sudden overnight, I'm at my target weight, whatever that may be, right? So super, super effective, but we also have to realize the scale at which it's operating. You said that it's, it's, I think adjunct is what you said, adjunct adjunct to diet and fitness. So does that simply mean, and this might be, just correct me on this. Does this just, it seems like what that means is because of what we talked about earlier, which is like, which is that just the body is kind of fighting against Mm. this weight loss to a degree is, does that mean that the drug is basically just kind of like countering some of that so that the diet and fitness changes, the lifestyle changes can actually have the effect that we think that they're going to have every time? Yeah. No, like I think the best way to think about it is calories still matter. Yeah what the drug is doing is it's helping the person not eat as many calories. Got it. Okay. And from a biological basis, again, the further they get from a healthy weight, the more they have most likely this kind of innate brain mechanism that is driving that craving. And of course, in our modern food environment, that's very hard to withstand. Right. So yeah, it's okay. just helping them reduce the caloric intake overall. Okay. So you had, you talked about, um, that perhaps we don't have a weight loss issue as much as we have a weight loss mm-hmm. maintenance mm-hmm. issue, yeah. <laughs> which I think is actually a really important point. Where does this drug uh, play into that? Is it something that it's taken for three months and then the it sticks? Or is yeah. this something that as long as you are still in the process of trying to lose the weight, you are in the process of taking this drug? Yeah. I think it's the latter. And I think it's even if you want to continue to maintain it, you have to continue to be on the drug. Forever. It's a forever thing is what it looks like so far is what it looks like so far. Why? Because it's controlling your appetite and hunger. And so as soon as you go off the drug, most likely that appetite, hunger and cravings will rebound. Right. And Mm. so there is another phase three clinical Mm. trial. This one's the Rubino paper in the show notes. All the participants received semaglutide for the first 20 weeks. And then after that time, they were randomly assigned to randomly assigned to either continue to get semaglutide or they were going to get a placebo for the remaining 48 weeks. So another 68 week study, those who continue to take semaglutide, they lost an additional 7.9% of their body weight. While those who switched to placebo regained an average of 6.9. So their overall weight loss was much less. They back, they backslid a lot. And so that's, I think some of the strongest evidence to suggest that people will have to stay to stay on this so long as they want to maintain the weight loss. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, um, so it doesn't maybe take off all the desired weight. And at the same time, as long as you want more weight to come off, you've got to continue taking that drug. Are there, it strikes me that there are kind of inherent drawbacks (laughs) to anything that, that, uh, that has those as kind of factors. What, what other drawbacks, if not, if there are any, uh, are, are, is the research showing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with any medication side effects, right? Side effects is always going to be the big one. Um, And GI side effects, gastrointestinal side effects seem to be the most common, nausea, diarrhea. Now, what they try to do to reduce these side effects is to slowly ramp up the dose. And I think it's over four weeks. Um, But you can just do your own Google search and reviews of these drugs. You're going to tell people that like, I couldn't stick on it. I was too nauseous and stuff like that. Um, And and the clinical trials show that. They always show the dropout rate. And I think it's around 5% in these clinical trials, which is, as far as I understand, relatively low for a drug. So it it tends to be better on the side effect front. But of course, not everyone um, will have a positive experience. 
the other problem is it's expensive. Um, from what I see, it's about $1,500 a month. And it's really a mixed bag, yeah, of whether or not insurance companies are going to cover an obesity-related medica- medication or, or even surgery and, and kind of a gastric bypass, but in this case. Um, and then, of course, as we just discussed, there's a high likelihood it's kind of a forever commitment, right? So obviously, the financial piece is, is going to be a big big aspect to it. And I think one other just drawback is just the injectable nature of it. I think people inherently, a lot of people don't really like needles and injections. Now, granted, it's once a week. So that's way better than kind of a daily thing. But I think there might be some, you know, issues with wanting to continue to do that type of, of drug. And I guess finally, to point out is we don't really have really long-term data. At this point, there's been lots of people, and obviously it's approved in clinical trials, but do we know exactly what happens with 20 years of taking this? No, we don't. And so it's there's always going to be risk with a pharmaceutical intervention, for sure. And has there been any, I mean, I, I imagine there has been, but what, what, what happens with dose over a long period of time? Mm-hmm. Does it need to increase in order to maintain the, the effectiveness or is it is it somehow not, is it somehow immune to what often happens where well, I've been taking this thing for 10 years now in order to, in order to, for it to still work, I have to, have, uh, you know, have upped the dose some, some percentage. Yeah. That's interesting. I think, ooh, I'd have to go back and check. I think, um, several of the 68 week, and I think there's been about seven or eight of the 68 week trials. I think they've kept the dose consistent. Um, so I don't know that they have evidence to suggest they'd have to up it or even what would happen. Could they kind of wean people off? I don't, I don't know that I, I, a, I don't think I looked into that specifically, but that's a good question. Interesting. Okay. So you mentioned, or you mentioned at the top kind of what the, um, prescription or who this prescription would be for, right? Certain BMI, certain other, uh, negative health factors. Is that kind of the beginning and the end of like who should actually consider whether this is a the right strategy for them? Is like where does where do you where do you come down on that? Yeah, I think those are great cutoff points for people to realistically think about whether or not this is um, something that they should pursue beyond diet and lifestyle changes. Well, I mean, I should kind of take that back. I think diet and lifestyle changes need to be there for everybody, <laughs> yeah. right? I think that's why so many diets fail. I mean, I think everyone knows this at this point, but that's sort of my whole message is we got to cut out the noise and what are really the realistic options and effective options we have from a diet and lifestyle perspective and to not get kind of bought into these different shiny objects and stuff like that. So that stuff is going to remain for everybody. But then I do think those criteria of over 27 BMI and obesity complication over 30 BMI, okay, go ahead and talk to your doctor. And I I think what's important for people to understand about this um, and maybe surprising, you know, that I'm recommending potentially a pharmaceutical intervention for those that can benefit from it. You know, at the same time that I think diet and exercise is wonderful, we also, in my opinion, need to really celebrate and use modern medicine when it's useful and appropriate. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there is this kind of undercurrent and kind of the wellness crowd that everything should be done naturally. I think we certainly talked about that in different ways in different podcasts. And to me, it's like, no, this is, this is what modern medicine, this is what conventional medicine is all about. We've got 70% of people are overweight or obese. I mean, I think it's actually over 70%. I think it's 40 over 40% are obese, you know, and the further that somebody gets from a healthy weight, the the problem is just compounded in terms of this kind of desire and cravings and appetite for food. You know, and I think one of the things that was really interesting when I was looking at this, this is from the GNA paper in the show notes. He's the author of the book that I've recommended before, The Hungry Brain. So really, mm-hmm. really good on the neuroscience, but it, just the power of the cravings of these foods. Now, granted, this is a rat study, but just I, I thought it was just so interesting that rats will voluntarily endure foot shocks and extreme cold 
to go obtain what would be the equivalent of a standard American diet when right in front of them is like the more healthy version of the unprocessed diet. Hmm. So there's this mega genetic pull for some of us, which is going to be heightened the further and further we get away from a healthy weight, foot shocks and, and during, during the cold to go get this stuff, right? Hmm. So you know, I, I'm not against this at all. And I, I think it can be a really great solution. And hats off to the people who have been able to make some drastic changes with diet and exercise. You know, you know, you hear these stories of people who have lost 100 pounds or more, that's incredible. And they're part of a very, very, very small group of people. And so I just think we need to kind of keep an open mind of like, maybe this could be a really great adjunct to help people improve their health risk, improve their quality of life. And diet and exercise are the best tools I have as a nutritionist. And if there can be an adjunct from a pharmaceutical intervention to have people kind of improve where they are, I'm, I'm all for it for sure. Super interesting. Okay. Thank you, EC. Thank you, everybody out there for listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. EC and I will be back for another episode of The Consistency Project soon. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I know there is a ton of content out there, and I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen to The Consistency Project. If you enjoyed the show, I appreciate you leaving a five-star rating and review. And sharing it on social media or recommending it to your friends and family really does help the podcast grow. As the podcast grows, I can keep bringing you weekly content. And if you want even more bonus content, you can join my email list at optimizemenutrition.com email. There's weekly emails, and it's also the best way to get your questions answered on the podcast. Just hit reply to any email to get in the queue, or even just send ideas in for future podcast episodes. Again, to do that, join my email list at optimizemenutrition.com email, and the link is also in the show notes. I'll see you there.